with you with real joy. You know, Isa, our Lord, was a great storyteller. And what I would like to do this morning is to share with you what I think is his greatest story of all and the way he has constructed this story and what he was trying to say through the story. And it's a well-known story. It's the, what we call, wrongly I believe, the parable of the prodigal son. I want to show you this morning that it's really better called the parable of the lost sons. Because both sons were lost. One just one son. Both sons were lost. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to it, uh, it's in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus continued. This is part of a condensation of three parables. I don't think Jesus told these parables simultaneously, but he could have done so. Or whether Luke took these three parables and compact them together here in this section of his uh, story. They start with the parable of the lost sheep, and then you have the parable of the lost coin, and now thirdly, you have this parable of the lost sons. And Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate or my share of the properties. And so he, this father, divided his property between them. Not just to one of them, between them. And what here in these few sentences we have is a, a picture of a broken, the broken relationship in this family. You see, no son can come to a Middle Eastern father while he's still alive and say, give me my inheritance. No son can do that. Imagine doing that here in Indonesia. Right? Imagine a son going up to his tycoon father and say, Father, give me my share now. It's impossible. And so suddenly, the listeners to this story are horrified. Where is this story leading? And, and you can imagine the tension. Right? Jesus is creating this tension. There's a father with two sons, and one day the son just comes and says, Father, I want my inheritance. The Jewish, under, the Jewish law doesn't allow you to give away your inheritance whilst you're still alive. Very much like us in Asia. This is why we understand the Bible better than the Westerners. Because so much of the culture is so similar to our culture here in Asia. Sadly, from 320 AD onwards, our Jewish faith had been hijacked to become more and more westernized. So that our theology today, our understanding of the Bible today is no longer eastern. It's become too western. And we need to recapture the context, the background, the culture of the East to really understand these powerful stories. So this son comes to the father and says, I want my inheritance. Jewish law says you can't do that. You can make a will to say, when I die, you know, this is for whom, this is for the other, and, and so on. But 
as even after that will is done, when you're still alive, you will still be the beneficiary. Even when you have been given the inheritance, you cannot sell. The father will still benefit from the estate, from the property. So what is happening here is really unusual. And there's something else too. Jewish law, inheritance law says, when you do this kind of sharing of the inheritance, the eldest son gets two-thirds. The youngest son only gets one-third. So what you have to understand here, what we have to understand, because again, because we don't have the Jewish culture in the background, we miss all this. What is happening here is, to do this, the father has to actually give two-thirds of the estate to the eldest son in order to give that one-third to the younger son. And what is even more incredible is not only does he divide up his inheritance this way, he then gives them the right, gives this younger son the right to sell the property so that he can then go off and enjoy life in a far country. This is, this is unheard of. Very unheard of. What it shows you is Jesus is painting the story where there is a broken relationship in his family. There is another broken relationship here. It's the eldest son. You see, there's an important role for the eldest son. I know because I'm the eldest son in my family. There's a responsibility, yes? Even in uh, Indonesian culture. You're the eldest son, there's a certain responsibility. When this younger brother of his comes to this father and effectively insults his father and says, give me my inheritance, what should the elder son be saying and doing? He should object and say, you cannot do this. He should be taking this younger brother by the scruff of his neck, throw him out and beat him up and say, go in and apologize to the father. That's what he should be doing. He doesn't. He doesn't because there's a broken relationship here in this family. Not just between the younger son and his father, but also with the eldest son and his father and the eldest brother and, and the brothers. So Jesus, in these very few words, just describes this picture of the broken relationship in his family. So in order for the younger son to have the rights to sell his share of the estate, the elder brother is also now inherited two-thirds of the estate. You see, we miss all this because we don't have the culture. We'll miss all this when we don't study and read up and understand the culture and the setting in which Jesus is telling these stories. The Jewish listeners to this story are horrified. What kind of son is this that can dare to come to the Father? Effectively, what the younger son is saying is, Father, I wish you were dead. Because that's when he rightly can inherit the, the estate. I wish you were dead. Is basically what he's, he's doing. Very sensitive. Very, very sensitive. Someone has described this parable 
as the parable of the prodigal father. No father should have agreed to this request, right? The father in the Eastern context, if a younger son came in and, and asked for this, should have picked him up and throw him out of the house because it's insulting. And the father is insulted. The father's hurt. And yet, and yet, this prodigal father agrees, agrees to this request. But this is just Jesus telling this story. Our Lord, amazing, right? You can feel the tension. Where, where is this story going? Then in the next stage of the story, the youngest son got together all he had, set off to a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He gets his share of the, of the estate, and what he has to do is to go around and say, will you buy this? You know, I've got this land, right? He tries to sell it, goes around the village, tries to sell. The villagers are up in arms. You cannot do this to your father, right? And in the Jewish culture, there is a ceremony called the Kizaza ceremony. The Kizaza, the, the, the two things that is really, really frowned upon uh, within the Jewish culture. The first is when you marry a non-Jew. That's terrible. Okay? You're, you're treated as if you're dead. As bad as dead. The second is if you lose your inheritance to the Gentiles. That's also terrible. Those are the two things. And if you commit any one of those two things, you are at risk of a ceremony called the Kizaza ceremony. The Kizaza ceremony is one where it is performed in order to demonstrate that you've been cut off from your people. And all it is is just in in a in a in a earthen vessel, in a earthen jar, you put a whole load of sort of nuts in there and you smash the pot in front of the person and say, You are now forever cut off from your people. And once you're cut off from people, even if you're hungry or whatever, starving, no one is supposed to help you. In our culture, here in, in, in the Islamic culture, you know, if someone um, marries a, a, a non-Muslim, uh, sometimes they, they carry out a mock funeral to say, my son or my daughter is dead. Right? That's, the, that's the kazaza. So he's going around the village saying, will you buy my property? You know, rolling up the whole village. Anyway, he's... Uh, the story says that he sells, he manages to sell uh, his property. He goes off to the far country, and where to think of this as really the Paris of the East of the time was Antioch. Isn't it amazing that the first Gentile church was in the Paris of the East? This is where you go to have all your fun. I mean, this is like the, the Singapore of Asia, you know, where you go to have your casinos and everything else. Paris of the East, Antioch. So he goes to Antioch. Spends his money, all the inheritance in wild living. No mention of prostitutes here. It's the elder son who says he squanders his money and inheritance using prostitutes. Wild living. And then a famine comes. And what does he do? He's, he's spent it all, right? So quite dramatic kind of storytelling by Isa, the Messiah. 
is so bad that he attaches himself to the wealthiest man. And the wealthiest man in Antioch, or one of the wealthiest men, was a pig breeder. So he's a Gentile, breeds pigs. We're not to think of this as a, a Jewish wealthy man. It's a, it's a non-Jew. It's a Gentile. Breeding pigs. Suddenly, the listeners of, 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 of this parable, who are all Jews, say, oh, that's terrible, right? Yeah, of course it's terrible. Imagine the, 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 the wealthiest Muslim uh, landowner in, I don't know, in Aceh, right, who has a son. He goes out and, and squanders all his inheritance and ends up attached to a pig breeder. Terrible. You know, Jesus is telling this really awful story. And not only does he end up looking after pigs, he's so hungry, he eats the food that the pigs eat. Whoa! This is really a horrible story. And Jesus is just cranking it up. Just giving us this picture. The son of a wealthy man who squanders all his inheritance, insults his father, Wishes his father to be dead. And now he ends up feeding pigs and eating the food that the pigs eat. You can't get any lower than this. This is rock bottom. The sun has hit rock bottom. And then he comes to his senses. All right, he's there. He's eating the food. This is the carrot pod. He's eating this and he's saying, this is worse than my father's servants. Right? My, servant, my father's servants eats better than this. I will go back to my father. But how do you go back to your father? How are you going to go back? Those of you who are Indonesians, you will know when you leave a village, as we've done in our little kampong back in Malaysia. You cannot go back to the village as a failure. Right? You can't. You cannot go back to your village as a failure. This is really hard. He's having to go back to his village, try and reconcile with his father, so he comes to his senses. The Jews understand this. Understand this story. There's no way this son can come back. No way. He's in trouble. He's deep in trouble now. Right? He's insulted his father. He's wished father to death. He sold all his inheritance. Lost it all to the Gentiles. How is he going to come back? So he thinks it through and he, he constructs a, a sermon in his head. He says, I will go back to the father and this is what I'm going to say to him. He's, he's going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. So he rehearses this message of what he is going to say, this speech that he had prepared. Yeah? He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be a son. Right? You don't have to accept me back as a son, but make me one of your hired servants. He doesn't say, make me one of your slaves. Make me one of your hired servants. So there are different 
classes of servants. And the hired servant here, hired man, he's not even a servant. The hired man here is somebody who's a contractor. He lives in the village. He, he doesn't belong to, to the estate anymore. He can live in the village as a free, individual, independent contractor. He's just hired occasionally to do certain jobs. So this son is still thinking, I, I, I want to be independent. Right? I just want to be a hired uh, hand. Hire me when you have jobs to do. And, and if there are no jobs to do, well, um, you know, I'm in trouble. <laughs> right? I just want to be hired hand. And that's what he's rehearsing in his head. That's how he thinks, okay, I'm ready to make my journey back. So he goes back to his father. And here in this second scene, he starts to walk back towards the village. And you know, in our, in our kampongs, right, there is a, what we call a bush telegraph, right? What's this bush telegraph? It's little boys running around the village, right, who, who sees people going here and everywhere, and they report back. Yeah? So this, this prodigal son is, is walking back towards the village, and the bush telegraph, these little boys, sees him in rags. And suddenly the word goes out. Prodigal is coming home. Get ready. Right? We must stop him from insulting his father again. Okay? There's a threat of the kezaza ceremony. He walks. And it's because, because he's going to be threatened, if not beaten up by the villagers, that this father here says, whilst he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The father had been waiting. So another way to look at this story is that of the waiting father. You know, the stories of Jesus are like diamonds. From different angles, you see different aspects of this amazing story. So you can look at this story as the parable of the waiting father. He's been waiting. And he sees the son, and he knows that the villagers could do him harm. And so he runs to him, filled with compassion. Very powerful word, compassion. Something to do with splanic in, in the Greek. That's the word splanic in that, which is the spleen. From deep within, felt compassion for him and ran towards him. Now again, we, when we read this kind of passages with our Western glasses on and lenses on, we don't appreciate how amazing this sight is. You see, important men in the Middle East do not run in public. The more important you are, the slower you walk. <laughs> that shows your importance. And this is why when we have VIPs and these politicians, they always come late to meetings, right? Because they don't have to rush for anybody. The more important you are, the slower you walk. 
Important men do not run in public. When did you see the governor of Bali running in public? And the reason you don't run in public is because they wear these long robes. It's very difficult to run. In order to run, you got to lift up the hem, right, to about just before above your knee. And when you do that, what do you do? You expose your underwear. And wealthy men used to wear purple underwear. It's shameful to run in public. And Jesus in this story, because I, I can tell you, there are only two times in the Bible, in the New Testament, where you see anyone running. Here, and the other one, Zacchaeus. The story of Zacchaeus. He runs in public. The only other time in the Old Testament is Elisha's servant. Important men in the Middle East do not run in public because it's shameful, it's humiliating. And here Jesus is giving us a picture of this father who is so full of compassion, he's willing to humiliate himself publicly in order to run to protect his son and welcome his son back. And in this little picture, Jesus is telling us about what God the Father is like. That's how he feels towards you. He's willing to humble himself publicly and run towards you. And not only to run towards you to protect you, he now throws his arms around this boy. Hey, wait a minute. As he got closer, he gets this horrible smell. What's that smell? This boy's been with pigs. He's smelly. He's dirty. Father doesn't care. He runs, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. Kisses him. Smell and all. This is a powerful, powerful picture that Jesus is trying to say to us. This is what our Father God is like. Come as you are. Smelly, dirty, broken, failure. Come as you are. He will run towards you and embrace you and kiss you. You know, praise and worship is great. Praise and worship is great. Thank you to the worship team. But you know, praise, you enter his courts, the outer courts with praise. And we should do that. But the real place where we really have an intimate moment with our God is when we enter into the Holy of Holies and where there's silence. And it's in that silence that God's intimacy touches us. It's in that silence, that place of silence, where we experience the embrace of God and the kiss of God on our lives. When last 
did you have that moment of silence when you experienced the kiss of God on your life? Because it's that kiss of God, that embrace of God, that will transform your life. Those of you who are husband and wives, it's in those moments of intimacy, of quietness, just the two of you, when you embrace each other, when you kiss each other, those are short moments. But those are the moments that you spark you to go and do things, yeah? Will keep you going for the whole week or whatever. It's the same with our relationship with God. We need those times of praise in the outer courts. But friends, don't just stay in the outer courts. We need to move into those times where we need to be silent before our God. And it's in those moments, in those holy of holies, that you will experience the embrace of God and the kiss of God upon your lives. And that's what Jesus is picturing us here for us here. Throws his arms around him and kisses him. And then the son rehearses this speech that he had prepared. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he could carry on any further, the father stops him. Father stops him. And the father says to his servants, quick, quick, bring the best robe. This best robe is the robe that the father puts on when he welcomes guests to an important dinner. So he's putting his, the father's best robe on his son. And he says, bring the signet ring and put it on him. This ring is a, is a symbol of his authority. And he's basically saying to his, sons, to his servants, he's a son. This is the sign of his authority. And put shoes on him. These slaves don't wear shoes. Put shoes on him. Put sandals on him. So this, this kid had blown everything away so that he, he comes back full of dressing rags. He's smelly. He's dirty. Doesn't even have sandals. What a story. Doesn't even have sandals. And the father says, put sandals on him. And then he says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And that is what our Heavenly Father does to each one of us when we turn and come back to Him. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know where you are, but God does. And wherever you are, you have a waiting father looking out for you, longing for you to return to him so he can run out to you and embrace you. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what you've done. He's longing to embrace you and kiss you with a kiss of life, kiss of his peace. And you know, they started to celebrate. 
The fattened calf is, is, is big enough. It's, it's the most precious animal. Right? And it can feed over 100 people. So this, you are, they imagine a big party. He's making a big sacrifice here for this useless son. Yeah? This useless son. He's going to give him a big celebration, big party to celebrate. Because he was lost and has now been found. He's come home. Jesus could have finished the story here. Great story, right? Great story. We like Hollywood's films because they have happy endings, right? This is a happy ending. He could have stopped the story here. He doesn't. There's another part to this story, which we don't often focus on. And he says this. Meanwhile, the older son, the elder son, was in the fields. He was working. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? And the servant said, your brother has come home. Imagine the elder brother say, what? How dare he? Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother is not happy. He is not happy. For number, and, and what that says to you is this, that there is no relationship between the elder, elder son and the father. Because if there had been a relationship, he would have gone straight into the house and welcomed his brother back. He could have gone straight into the house and said, hey, father, what's going on? He doesn't. He calls a servant. And that shows you this broken relationship that's there. He's angry. He's angry. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. And he refused to go in to, to join the celebration. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Hey, Middle Eastern fathers don't do that. Right? This father didn't just go out once that day to welcome his younger son. He has to go out of the house a second time in one day. This time to plead with his elder son. No Middle Eastern father does this. This is an amazing father. Second time, he goes out, humbles himself, and he says, son, come in. Your, your brother is home. He was lost. He's now found. You should rejoice. Eldest son, not happy at all. He's angry. And look at what he says. He says, look. All these years, he complains to his father. All these years, I've been slaving for you. Hey, hello. You're a son. You're not a slave. And by the way, when I distributed the estate, you got two-thirds. He says, all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And you see that relationship? There is no relationship of love there. I slave for you. I obey all your orders. It's not a relationship of love. Yet you never gave, even gave me a kid, a young goat. Never mind a fattened calf. Oh, 
All I wanted was just a young goat. So I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son, effectively, when this useless son of yours, right, who has squandered all your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. In a Middle Eastern context, when a, fa- when a son speaks in that kind of tone to the father, that's an insult. It's a big insult. The father is supposed to take him by the scruff of the neck and beat him and throw him out of the house. And that's what the hearers of this story is expecting. Well, oh no. This father pleads further with his son. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. It is. Everything I have is now yours already. Two-thirds of what's left is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The conversation some, one of the theologians said, has structured it this way very beautifully. What the elder son is saying, you never even give me, a, give me a kid all these years to celebrate so I could celebrate with my friends. And the father says, yeah, but everything I have is yours already. You're a son. Everything I have is yours already. And then the elder son says, yeah, but you didn't even give me a kid to celebrate. Whereas this useless son of yours, you celebrate with a fattened calf. And and the father says, oh, I see. You also want me dead. You also want me dead so that you can also then have all that inheritance, the two-thirds that's yours, so that you can then use to, to celebrate with your friends. Friends, both sons are lost. One was lost away from home in a far country. This son was lost at home. He had no relationship with his father. You could have been a Christian for years and years and years. But you could be lost here. Because you too don't have a relationship with your father. And if that's you, and and, and he here is addressing it to really the Pharisees. The Pharisees are so full of condemnation, right? That useless person, why, why is God welcoming her back? You know, that useless man, that failure, that broken life. Why is God welcoming all these sinners when I'm the righteous person? You know, standing in judgment always, condemning people. Why does the Pharisees, they are lost too. They are lost too. So it doesn't matter where we are this morning. Whether you're lost away from home or whether you're lost here. You could have been in church a long time. Been a Christian a long time. But if you don't have a relationship with your father. If you don't have a relationship where you have those moments of intimacy. Where in that place of quietness. You experience the arms of God embracing you. And giving you his kiss of peace. You need to come home. 
you need to come home. As a father who's full of compassion, who loves you just as you are, you may be dressed in rags and smelly and dirty from wherever you've been. As a waiting father who wants to run towards you, who wants to come out of the house to plead with you to come home. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord